Hey, how's it going, everybody? You're listening to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Week four of Nintendo Mon. Thanks so much for joining us. This is a podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. And I'm their brother, Marty Brueggemann. We've got a full bench this week. Woo-woo. The full Mercado fam in the house. Yes, we uh, do. Because we have an important topic today. We kind of needed all hands on deck for this. <laughs> I think we could use another couple of brothers, actually. <laughs> yeah, Will and Marty really took the reins this week and prepared a really wonderful episode all about our favorite video game composer, Koji Kondo. Could not be more fitting for week four of Nintendo Month. You know, he's one of those composers who I think is more complex and nuanced than he often gets credit for. And so what we Mm -hmm. wanted to do today is to highlight all the different hats of Koji Kondo or the many caps, if you will, if we want to use Mario nomenclature to really celebrate this wonderful and unique artist who's given so much to the world of video games, the world of music in general. Maybe the most inspiring thing for me personally is that aspect of him where he never rests on his laurels and he never has. He's never been satisfied doing the same old thing like some composers may have been. All of his like surprising turns over his career, they've all been so successful and like for me personally very impactful and that might be what, what sets him apart more than anything to me. What's coming back in my mind is something I know I've mentioned uh, on the podcast years ago. It relates to like one of my favorite Simpsons bits. (laughs) Nice. The classic episode when Lisa becomes a vegetarian. Oh, yeah. She's at the dinner table and she realizes she can't eat it. And it's like, no, dad, this is ham. It's like, well, will you eat bacon? It's like, no, will you eat pork? It's like, dad, those are all the same animal. Sure, Lisa. A magical (laughs) Magical animal. animal. That's where she meets Paul later. And I remember kind of the late 90s, it was a very different internet at that time, pre-Wikipedia, much rowdier, less slick internet that some of us might remember. Yeah. But I remember as I was starting to try to gather a little bit more history and a little bit more understanding, I remember the very first time where I was coming across these pages, this name, and realizing that this name, uh, the person that just composed Mario 64 is the person who's composed all of this music that I love. And it was like this one magical animal. And yeah. there's been no other time in my life to have that kind That's of shock. That's interesting. Cause like, do, so do you remember that moment of like, actually, cause I, it's interesting. I don't have a specific memory of that probably because you told me when I was a young kid, when I first saw Mario 64, you probably, told I probably me. ran out of the room right then and was like, yeah. <laughs> shaking you because that's about. interesting I, th- for me that's my first specific memory I think it was when we first played that game and we didn't even own a 64 one of your friends brought it yeah. over and, and I do remember you saying something about the music something about the composer that was the first thing that put it on my, my child brain See, you know what's funny I remember that I remember <laughs> when John Fields came over for the first time with yeah. his Nintendo 64 I mean that's one of my earliest memories like most formative of memories is seeing that game on our home TV. Well, you know what's funny is I have to say this about Koji. He was a big part of a handful of my favorite and most nostalgic gaming memories. Those experiences were as joyous as anything I could imagine and there's just this this childlike wonder that I still get from his music. Yeah, completely.
the element of nostalgia is something that a lot of us have for anything in our childhoods. But I think sometimes the the whole conversation of nostalgia gets wrapped up with Nintendo music in a dismissive way of sort of like, oh, you just like it because you have these associative memories. But I think the music was authored to feel nostalgic. It so often calls back to these very sentimental musical styles of older eras. Totally. Preparing for this episode, I've been brushing up basically every interview I could find. And really the through line between all of it, interviews from the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, more recently, the thing that is consistent that he always reinforces again and again is that it's all about supporting what the game needs all of his musical choices which yeah. you know we've called out as being so masterful yeah. his primary intention at all times is to make the game more fun or but see making it more fun doesn't mean it's always more happy and joyful he, he what he means is reinforcing the game mm-hmm. experience more exciting yeah i mean that's what he's such a master at is being attuned to what the player needs to be feeling in every moment and that's why i think so many of our favorite game moments are wrapped up with his music not just because the music is great which it is but because the music is so married mm-hmm. to the experience of what playing that game feels like and so our memories it's all mixed in So really the main focus of today's episode is to explore, honestly, some of the lesser celebrated and the lesser discussed facets of Koji Kondo's career, as well as just taking sort of a broad 15,000 foot overview of all the various caps that he wears. If you think about, you know, Mario 64, you know, he puts on these different caps and they all, you know, imbue him with these magical powers. I think of Koji that way as a composer, someone who's so versatile in all these different pastiche styles, but in a very kind of humble and invisible way. It's very rarely about kind of glorifying his own ego or showing off, flexing his muscles, so to speak. It's what's needed for the game. No, absolutely. And and our hope with this is really that by the end, we'll all have, I think, a deeper understanding of who Kochi Kondo is as a composer and maybe even begin to scratch the surface of who Koji Kondo is as a person. What are his core philosophies? What are the strongest values that really drive him? Well, because I think he is recognized, um, certainly, as like an important part of video game history. But because so much of his most recognizable and popular work is associated with these franchises like Mario and Zelda, yeah. sometimes I think that the popularity and the almost the commercialism of those specific franchises sometimes have this ability to overshadow his singular voice as a composer and really the multifaceted career that he's had because in addition to being probably one of our greatest living melodists he continues to push so much innovation and 
outside of the box thinking when it comes to implementation and when it comes to bold musical choices. Right. And yeah, it continues to surprise us, even those of us that have been following his music career um, with so much passion. So I'm kind of wondering, what do you think would be the best starting point? Where do we think that most people are coming from when they're engaging with the music of Koji Kondo? Well, I have a feeling that when most people think of Koji Kondo, they picture something like this. Now, believe it or not, this actually isn't from a Mario game. Um, but it has a lot of the hallmarks that we associate with so much of the music from that series. And I think this particular cap, if you will, this facet of Koji's writing, I think often gets referred to as ragtime. Right. But I'm not so sure that that's accurate. While there are obviously examples in Kondo's career where he has overtly expressed this pastiche paintbrush of ragtime, I think often when people are calling out ragtime, is an influence, I think they're getting to something deeper. It's more the underlying right. emotion that his music gives us. This old-fashioned sense of harmony, the first half of the 20th century kind of American entertainment novelty music. And yeah, a kind of melody against this old-fashioned, maybe turn of the century. We're talking the previous turn of the century. This kind of melody that would really rise above the texture in a way that was, I would say, more pronounced than European classical music. Melodies that really meant to grab the listener, you know, early Tin Pan Alley we might think of, but also the kind of music that would be at home in a carnival or on vaudeville stages. And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if the ragtime label didn't come from pianists who were often right. an early troupe that engaged with video game music because they had the facility to reproduce it. And in the piano sort of classical canon, ragtime is really the closest that you get to that kind of early Americana entertaining style that we're talking about. But yeah, I think an, a slightly broader concept, something like old-timey music. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a banner that encompasses lots of genres of music. Dixieland, bluegrass, uh, stride piano, various forms of like early jazz, pre-jazz, right. that kind of era that you're talking about. But the thing is, that only scratches the surface of Koji Kondo's voice, both as a master of the art, I think, of pastiche, but also his own personal flavors and styles. Because in many ways, Koji Kondo is such a neoclassicist. Absolutely. But yet at the same time, has this whole facet of his music that is incredibly avant-garde and borrows from progressive rock and elements of, you know, atonal music and really experimental music. That's a huge part of his voice as a composer. Beyond that, there's so much fascinating music. Koji Kondo kind of travels around the world pulling influences from Latin America, from African folk music, and although not quite as frequently from also Japanese folk music tradition. And then there's also the facet of his music that feels like there's some influence or acknowledgement 
of Western film music. And I think that is very prevalent in the Zelda series, particularly in his use of the modes and modal writing. If you think of things like Link to the Past, Ocarina of Time, but he really is this master not only of conventional tonal structures, you know, major, minor scales and everything, but things like the Dorian mode, the Lydian mode, the Mixolydian mode, the Phrygian mode. That's a huge part of his compositional corpus. Another cap that we could attribute to Koji Kondo is this identity as really a game designer, this forward-thinking quality to his genius as a you know music and games implementer. As much as we're all fans of music in terms of the, the composition, it's absolutely crucial that we also recognize this music in the context that it was created. All of these pieces are meant to really do something functionally in a video game. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Because his music is so rich and so memorable and nostalgic for many of us, there's always just a plethora of things to talk about. But I think his primary focus in everything he's ever done is to serve the game and in most cases to make it more fun or to heighten the emotion that the player needs to experience. Why don't we go back now to our initial impression when we're sort of describing Koji as this old-timey composer, ragtime, bluegrass, things like that. I've always felt that there was this sort of symbiosis between the kind of feelings that Koji Kondo and his music elicit in me and the music of someone like Scott Joplin. He's a ragtime composer, but at the same time, ragtime, a rag is a very specific musical form and musical style. And Scott Joplin composed a lot of music that uh, you couldn't necessarily accurately call a ragtime, yet he still has the sort of that turn of the century harmonic grammar where it's this halfway point between classical and jazz and often there's this deep sort of melancholy there's a there's a sadness within the happiness or a happiness within the sadness and that's a feature that so much of Kondo's music has I'm so glad you're calling that out. If you think of a piece like Solace, similar to Kondo, you know, it really reveals this personal, emotional, vulnerable, melancholy side. And also, as we'll touch on with Kondo, a lot of Joplin's rags, Solace is actually a great example, do pull influence from Latin American musical traditions. And so I think what we'll probably end up getting at as we explore each of these caps is that a lot of times the stylistic boundaries aren't maybe as tight. It's often in the interest of journalists and these days websites and algorithms to imagine that music has these very tight categories that constrain it, especially when we're talking about musical style. And it's in practice, it's just not really the case. I mean, each of these genres 
in Western music are sharing the same notes, you know, sharing the same perception of, of rhythm. And so we are going to see a lot of overlap. But in terms of the the strong pastiche colors that we're talking about, very striking examples of what we'd call ragtimey music in Kondo's canon. You know, the Super Mario 2 overworld is a highlight there. Super Mario World Athletic. When played on a piano, I mean, that feels like part of the ragtime canon now. Yeah, and I mean, I think it it also goes beyond the music of Koji Kondo, but it's sort of a it's become a very clear style marker for the series in the music of other staff members at Nintendo. I think of a lot of the music to Super Mario Land Two by Kazumi Tataka yeah. has really taken the riff of ragtime that's perhaps suggested by some of Kondo's music, but he makes it I think much more explicit in that game. And there are other instances of that throughout the course of the series. One thing that I don't think gets called out enough is how much of his music in the Mario and Zelda series draw influence from bluegrass music. say is the next cap that kind of looms so large in Koji Kondo's body of work? I think probably the largest and uh, if there were a cap that could one cap to rule them yeah, all. Yeah, one cap to rule them all. It would be his neoclassicist cap. There are many facets of classical music that Koji has drawn from, particularly in the Mario and Zelda series. But I'd say even in his music that you wouldn't necessarily listen to and say, that sounds classical. I think what he shares in common with almost a Mozartian composer is the symmetricality and formalism of his music. So much of his music has very clear introduction, A section, B section, even number of four eight-bar phrases, these these melody lines that have these very classical sounding cadences. We have a half cadence and then a perfect cadence, and you can feel the, if not necessarily the harmonic or melodic influence of classical music, 
at almost all times the formal and structural influence. Now, that's not to say he doesn't violate and break those rules, but when he does, right. there's always such intention behind it. And I think one of the innovations that Koji brought to the world of game music, if we go back to the original Super Mario Brothers, is that it really is this postmodern approach where not only does every piece of music in that game conjure up a different mood, yet he's intentionally leaning in to these very distinct and completely separate pastiche styles in drawing upon our extra musical associations with them. And this is something that one of the advantages to early chip music was that it was this unifying element that you could have this house style of the sound chip. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You could have kind of a Latin samba and then some atonal avant-garde piece and then a classical waltz. Speaking of that, I think one of the largest umbrellas that you could put so much of Koji's music into is the category of classical waltz writing. Even this set of pieces could be a mini greatest hits playlist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think another thing that's really important when viewing some of this music as neoclassical is a lot of the extended harmony, the non-diatonic harmony, is much more like romantic era, classical era influenced. There's plenty of jazz influence in Koji's body of work. But here, very often, we have these kind of appoggiatura outside chromatic moments and, you know, underpinned by diminished harmony and that sort of a thing. And also so many beautiful melodies of sequence that, you know, kind of fall under this cap of Koji. Yeah, I mean, we've talked before about his sort of music box quality, the aspect of his music that feels so perfect and simple irreducibly so um, but it's the good kind of simple it's that really appealing simplicity that it's what I think makes so much Nintendo music particularly the stuff Koji writes really appealing to people of all ages yet I distinctly remember as a kid I never felt like the music was talking down to me it never felt like right. it was light-hearted and easygoing even if the rhythms and the surface level emotions might suggest that Koji's music was some of the first music to make me cry and um, really emote and that's another thing that I think he has in common with someone like Joe Hisaishi that melodic directness and simplicity he's another person who 
is in many ways a neoclassicist. And I think both of them, their their approach to melodic writing is classically rooted, even if it has this sort of pop music kind of appeal. Um, I, I would encourage you to listen to this next medley through the lens of this classical neoclassicist cap that we're talking about because I think like Marty alluded to it'd be very easy to hear the jazz influence or the pop influence in here yet one of the techniques that Koji Kondo employs so often is this concept called the Alberti bass technique a particular left-hand pianistic arpeggio pattern it was really rose to prominence in the era of the clavichord and the harpsichord yeah if you think of the famous piano sonata in C from Mozart that so many piano students start in kind of the early years of their study. That's sort of what we're talking about. And I would say in kind of the earlier period of Koji music, there's quite a lot of music that feels like it could sit alongside some of these piano sonatas and could kind of be in a collection of classical piano repertoire. incredible things about Koji Kondo's music is how emotionally honest and earnest and sincere the music feels despite so often being these examples of really overt pastiche. I mean, I think in so many of those examples, not only does he utilize that Alberti bass technique, but it becomes this almost caricature of that period of music making. Somehow I feel like when other composers implore these kinds of techniques, and not that everything in that medley we played featured the Alberti bass technique. It was sort of a cornucopia of different piano sonata-esque facets of his... Yeah, and different, I would say, Germanic and, and maybe Italian kind of classical... Uh, gestures. But what I think is interesting is, in my opinion, in a lot of actual <laughs> Germanic classical music that has these very symmetrical forms and, you know, eight bar phrases and it's the, they don't entertain the audience in the same way. Absolutely. And what's interesting is in all of the examples that we played, even something like the shooting gallery or God, jungle cruise gallery. from the Zelda series, which which clearly have this novelty music quality there's something meta about it music that you could imagine actually being like source music in in the world there still is this the same level of thought and craft behind the construction of these melodies 
often are so irreducible. It's a lot of these even simple rhythms, the ways, the economy of notes, the fact that he'll often have these striking opening and closing phrases that feel like you couldn't take out pitches to improve it. Yeah, no, really well said. Yeah, there's nothing further to shave or refine. It's just endlessly appealing. It's not only that it's a very accurate send-up of some kind of Oktoberfest <laughs> instrumental that's playing in the beer garden, but it's that it's hookier than those original sources are often. Kondo's always focused on what's right for the game, what is this doing to the player, how is this engaging the player. It's a level beyond kind of the vaudevillian who knows his or her audience. You have to kind of know your audience at a much more personal level when considering a, a game player. Yeah, I mean, I think even in pieces of music that people would say like, oh, this is more of a big band thing or this is more of a ragtime or Dixieland or whatever, again the the part writing the voice leading like there's a particular kind of voice leading that Koji Kondo tends to use in a lot of his music particularly in the Mario series and it features this chromatic motion in the bass line we start on the third scale degree it's this sort of first inversion tonic chord if we think of ourselves in C major all the white keys on the piano be going to this sort of C over E to this kind of E flat major chord or sometimes you know a C minor over E flat to then like a D minor chord or maybe D minor seven chord we go down to the second scale degree and then maybe to the five or sometimes he'll employ what we would call a tritone substitution which is this particular kind of bass resolution where it resolves from half step from above there's a great example from yoshi's island that does this sort of chromatic movement What's interesting is, you know, when you listen to some of those examples, if you think of Bob on Battlefield or, you know, Flower Garden from Yoshi's Island, it wouldn't be apparent on first listen that there's classicism in that writing. But structurally, in terms of the underlying music theory and the elegance of the voice leading. Right, this much more sophisticated, chromatic voice leading. And what's so fascinating is it really does feel like it's in the DNA at this point. Mahito Yokota very often is utilizing that kind of gesture right. in both of his Galaxy scores. Yeah, as well as like the Mario 3D Land 3D. 3D world stuff uses that all the time. I mean, it's kind of a yeah, one of the absolutely. things if you're sending up Mario music as well as the bum, 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 which again is this sort of like planing motion with some chromaticism. I think that's a big part of Koji's voice, I'd say. I mean, lastly, before we move on, because I think this classical side is probably the biggest facet of his voice um you talked about the romantic era something like the fairy fountain theme i mean you can't get more romantic than that double meaning of romantic yeah i mean the yoshi's island ending that particular piece evokes perhaps elements of variations on a theme of paganini uh something like inside the castle walls again this regal this regality diminished harmony yeah that kind of romanticism yet there also is the sort of late or post-romantic side to koji's music yeah and i would almost kind of describe that as sort of the grand orchestra it's kind of the 
the era of Mahler and Holst and getting into the era of orchestral film music. What's fascinating is I feel that Koji is excellent at evoking this even in the early days of very limited chipsets, often by utilizing a really effective ostinato that gives a sense that there's a whole orchestra underpinning a melody. Um, I would say, you know, the Hyrule Castle theme in A Link to the Past really evokes the sense of grand orchestra. One of my favorites is a piece from Shin Onigashima, third chapter, Morning, that again, with the very limited channels of the Famicom Disk System, really evokes this sense of scale. Also, pieces that more explicitly, like his opening, The Legend of Skyloft from Skyward Sword, that not only in that case is implying that kind of grandiosity, but really executing it with this incredible orchestration and orchestral performance. Again, that early part of the 20th century, or right at the transition between the 19th century and the 20th century, I think that that's a particular point of fixation for Koji when it comes to classical music. But really, another facet of his corpus that you can't really say enough about is Koji as an avant-gardist. Yeah, this is such a fascinating cap. And I think where that most affects him is from progressive rock and jazz fusion. This was so much of the music that he admired and so many of the musicians that he idolized from a young age. You know, his first instrument was not the piano. It was the electric organ. And I think he always envisioned himself belonging to that kind of world to whatever degree he considered himself a performer. I think playing as a keyboardist in these sort of rock and fusion bands, uh, you can hear right. the influence of that um, in so much of his music, whether it's explicit examples like some of the great Mario and Yoshi's Island boss music that has this progressive rock touch, yet it's also in some of these subliminal and in subtle ways, his particular approaches to voice leading and harmonic motion that occasionally you can tell it's like, oh, this comes from like a rock keyboardist. Right. And yeah, I think it's important to remember the era in which Koji and his peers came of age. There absolutely was a place for the keyboard in really the most out there rock groups. Obviously, mores and culture and times change. So it almost felt like by the time that he was really busy in his own professional career, that maybe wasn't always the case. But I think it's important going back to some of those sources. And we really very often are in the avant-garde as much as we are in the progressive rock and in the world of jazz fusion. I mean, even back on the NES, I mean, if you think about oh, some absolutely. of the music that characterizes Ganon in the original title, I mean, that we've talked about that Super Mario Brothers 3 castle music that's so delightfully atonal uh, some of the Shinonagashima music that has these really experimental I mean talk about asymmetry right. we've called out the, the symmetry in his phrases but even something like Mario underground music that has these 
changing meters where he's trying to throw you off balance. I mean, this is again, when we talk about the context of his music, this is why I said it was postmodern because it's like when it's classical, it's intentionally borrowing from every facet of what makes something feel classical. Melodically, harmonically, the part writing, the form, the balance of elements. Yet when he's going for avant-garde, when he's going for world music or whatever he's doing, he's really trying to lean into what makes that music contrasting and different emotionally so that it can serve a completely different function in the game. I mean, there's some incredible moments of really nimble, complex, and perplexing scalar passages in his music. A lot of the progressive rock stuff, but you know, even examples like that sort of atonal trumpet run in Bowser's Kingdom from Mario Odyssey. I was particularly influenced by that sequence of notes when we were working on the first Hero of Legend, the sort of like final boss track. I was trying to play on a lot of Koji's progressive tropes. And one of the things that he does is come back to this almost unison line that feels like a kind of prog rock solo, this seemingly atonal sequence of notes that almost brings to mind sound effects or jingles that we get in the Zelda series. <laughs> Well, I absolutely adore this aspect of Koji Kondo's writing, and it's amazing that he's so clearly a phenomenal melodist, creating these melodies that are irreducible, as he said, and simple and appealing and hummable. And the fact that it's the same person also just delights in these opaque, abstract, angular lines. And these aren't sort of, you know, one-off occasions. Really, this style of writing kind of runs throughout his body of work. Well, you know, I think this concept of the avant-garde really connects to something that you've been exploring, especially for today. Over the course of Koji Kondo's career, he's adopted many different personas musically. We've already touched on his approach to pastiche and how it may actually be central to understanding his own identity. I want to discuss a facet of Koji's writing that is equally broad, but more of an under-the-hood feature. This is something that, to the average listener, may go completely unnoticed, because it's deep inside the harmonic bones of Kondo-san's music, and less about the particular clothing of style or genre. What I'm speaking to is the prevalence of the fourth interval in the music of Koji Kondo. This fondness for fourths is not necessarily distinct to Kondo-san. In fact, it's something he shares with many of his peers in Japan, composers throughout the worlds of game music, TV, anime, and film music, who have a propensity for creating moments of tension, mystery, or suspense by using fourths in a fashion not dissimilar to Koji. Like other concepts we've touched on over the years, such as the Dorian mode, the sound of harmonies built in fourths, as opposed to thirds, fifths, or any other interval, are useful not only because they help realize a distinct palette of emotions, but because they accomplish multiple things simultaneously. In the same way that a Dorian scale might conjure up medieval or religious music connotations, while also eliciting associations with 70s rock music or heroic film scores, 
Fourth-based harmony, also known as quartal harmony, may remind us of 20th century classical composers like Debussy, Hindemith, or Poulenc, as well as jazz artists like McCoy Tyner, Bill Evans, and Miles Davis. In addition to those decidedly Western connotations, the sound of planing perfect fourths is also evocative of certain East Asian folk music traditions. Before I get ahead of myself with examples, I want to make sure we're all clear by what I mean when I say chords built on fourths, or quartal harmony. When thinking about chords, a triad is sort of our default way of conceiving harmony. Triads are three-note chords built in stacks of thirds, with a root, third, and fifth. Triads are the most stable chord construction, likely because they're reflected in nature as natural harmonics in the overtone series. Over the centuries, composers have naturally expanded their harmonic toolkits by continuing to add stacks of thirds above and beyond these basic tertian triads. This is how we get the more lush and emotionally complex constructions like 7th chords, ninth chords, even 13th chords. During the 20th century, there was an acceleration of musical dissonance, and many composers were looking to explore increasingly complex forms of musical harmony. Things like atonality, polytonality, and microtonality were causing division and controversy among composers and music scholars alike. One attempt at exploring a new means of organizing musical thought was quartal harmony, in which chords were built not on thirds like the triads we discussed, but rather in fourths. Because of the primacy of tertian third-based harmony in the overtone series and its prevalence throughout musical history, hearing music constructed in this fashion sounded totally new, while still being rooted in some sort of familiar tonal frame of reference. Organizing chords in fourths yields a prevalence of open intervals, as well as some peculiar dissonances like the tritone and major seventh. These chordal harmonies feel powerful and ambiguous. Since there is no third, our ear can't tell if these are major chords or minor chords. Instead, they feel suspended, ambivalent, and even mildly bizarre. Yet unlike truly atonal music, these harmonies still sound somewhat sonorous and can be quite beautiful. Much of Koji Kondo's music for Nintendo makes ample use of this kind of quartal writing. From Link to the Past to Star Fox 64, Pilot Wings to Mario Odyssey, many of the darkest, climactic, and most harmonically interesting moments are owed to chord architecture built upon perfect and augmented fourths, often planing around in a sort of non-tonal soup. It's a brilliant sound and one that any Nintendo fan will find familiar.
are some of Koji's most iconic moments, some of the most iconic in all of gaming, and they're decidedly experimental in nature. However, Koji's particular fixation on fourths moving in parallel isn't simply limited to chordal harmony. Much of his music features distinct moments of fourth harmonies, but there's usually more to it than a simple naked stack of fourths, much like how John Williams may evoke a mode for only a few bars within a theme, often Koji Kondo's chordal moments exist only as part of a larger whole. In fact, a great deal of his light-hearted, triadic music contains hints of parallel fourths everywhere. Take this harmonized melody line from Yoshi's Island. Or this one from New Super Mario Brothers. in there. Even the B section of Inside the Castle Walls harmonizes the melody with these lovely parallel fourths. It's safe to say his fourth-centric way of voicing chords began on the NES. Back then, the economy of notes was a technical necessity, not just a musical one. In a world of three-note chords, any means of expanding beyond the triad was a useful tool for an 8-bit composer. While the technology evolved, Kondo's thinking often was still rooted in the principles of composing for the NES. Parallel fourths crop up all the time in his 8-bit catalog. One of my favorite examples is the underground music from the US version of Super Mario Bros. 2. I think it's such an interesting departure from his approach in the original Super Mario Bros. Underground. Rather than those mysterious unison lines, here Koji depicts the caverns with chordal voicings using an augmented fourth or tritone between the lowest two voices and a perfect fourth between the top set. This particular voicing is one that Koji tends to use for especially sinister moments in the Zelda series. Here, I love the way that the triangle bass deftly switches between this arpeggiated bass line and harmonizing the melodic line. This seems to land somewhere between avant-garde classical, progressive rock, and even elements of Indian music, the way we remain rooted in one tonic of F, as well as the particular rhythmic groove of that bass line. The melody that follows is harmonized in classic Kondo fashion with a planing pair of fourths. Over the years, I've heard people dismiss the heavy use of fourths in Kondo's writing as sort of a clumsy amateurism, the sound of an untrained composer with more of a rock vocabulary. Sometimes these bold and striking choices, when paired with the often unflattering timbres of old game hardware, seem to suggest perhaps a randomness or lack of sophisticated harmonic voice leading to some. However, Kondo's neoclassicist credentials are so well established by this point that these kinds of claims make no actual sense upon any kind of scrutiny. His harmonies, like every aspect of his music, are by no means an accident. Koji Kondo is a deliberate and meticulous composer. We've claimed countless times before that his melodies are irreducible and have the craftsmanship of a master. Certainly, this isn't a man who flippantly drags notes around in a MIDI editor or uses a sort of lazy guesswork. Rather, I think Koji's fondness for fourths is a style characteristic of his singular voice as an artist. There's a piece that I believe illustrates this perfectly, the opening prelude from The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. (laughs) ¶¶ 
dramatic and striking chords in the opening bars are a series of planing suspended chords. Now, suspended chords, or sus chords, can be thought of as a form of chordal harmony themselves. By inverting the octave of one of the notes, voila, we have a perfect stack of perfect fourths. The tension in this entire progression comes from these ambiguous chords that aren't major or minor and are ascending chromatically by half-step. Classicist that he is, Koji contrasts his rhythmic and turgid opening section with a beautifully lyrical B section. In this B statement, we hear the lush sounds of major seventh chords, which have become sort of a staple of the Zelda series' musical identity. I think of this as the first real demonstration of that characteristic sound that would become the foundation for generations of future Zelda scores. Would you believe it though, despite this clearly major triadic harmony, Kondo's fixation on the fourth remains. The first chord that marks the beginning of the B section is a C major 7, but with a surprising and unexpected F in the bass. As well as being the fourth of the chord, F is also the fourth scale degree in our tonic key of C. Like the sound of chordal harmony, these kinds of slash chords with the fourth in the bass create an ambiguous, even otherworldly emotion, employed here to depict the beautifully mysterious Golden Land, a magical realm in the game's backstory that becomes twisted by Ganon and transformed into the Dark World. In fact, speaking of Ganon, his iconic theme is another instance of Koji's chordal cap in full display. But I shouldn't indulge that tangent. Back to the prelude. We go from C major 7 over F to F major over B flat, and once again we have the fourth of the chord in the bass. It's a gorgeous and impressionistic kind of sound that I think earns the series some serious sophistication entirely with music and sets the tone for the kind of high fantasy mythic journey that's in store. Now that he's established a pattern of slash chords, we might expect our next chord of E flat major 7 to have its fourth A flat in the bass. Yet here Koji opts only for the root of E flat. And it's choices like this where he displays a kind of restraint and taste that I personally feel too many of his contemporaries seem to disregard. It would seem Kondo is ignored in the discussion of great harmonists and arrangers because his moments of colorful harmony are sparingly used, but they're also carefully chosen. In the Mario series, for example, Koji's display of jazzy, extended harmony often occur in the context of an otherwise diatonic or harmonically simple piece. It's this exact sort of restraint that to me communicates so much, not only informing us of his taste as a musician, but his personality too. It perhaps gets to the very essence of his music, right to his heart, his soul. I really believe that it's a huge part of what activates the storytelling that was present in those classic Nintendo games. It's something he activates inside of us. One feature of this prelude I admire so much is that despite ultimately being in C, there is no C major or minor tonic chord in the whole piece, unless you count that bizarre slash chord with the F in the bass. This piece constantly surprises you with unexpected harmonies, yet the flow of the melody feels timeless and inevitable. 
This sort of perfect balance is central to understanding Kondo's writing, that balance between simplicity and complexity. In a sense, I think that's why he's drawn time and again to chordal harmonies. They produce a complex, even dissonant result, but are achieved by relatively simple means. What's so cool about this aspect of his musical grammar is that it transcends genre, mood, and in-game contexts. It's that subtle sort of thumbprint that separates one author from another. And while the use of fourths themselves may belong to no single composer, it's fair to say that the specific ways Koji Kondo uses them give us a better insight into who he is, where he comes from, what his influences are, and the personal touches he leaves for us to find. Breadcrumbs invisibly left behind in every game soundtrack for the careful listener to find and say, that's Koji. What's exciting me is the idea that you could peel back the curtain a little bit more and try to understand this man in kind of some greater depth. And I don't know if it's just me, but I sort of have the sense that to the extent anyone thinks about Koji Kondo as a person, that they're maybe picturing, I don't know, kind of like a soft-spoken, friendly, sort of dad energy suit and tie man. Mm -hmm. And I think as Will's pointing out, when you really look into his history and his background, there's like this Andy Warhol-ish side to Koji Kondo that <laughs> no one would anticipate. But when you have that in mind, you're going to find that everywhere in his music. It's the versatility yeah. that we're talking about, um, the bite, mm -hmm. the uh, these departures into the avant-garde. And above all, I think that it's always with this incredible mm. sense for the audience. I mean, I think it's one thing to have a goal, but it's another thing mm -hmm. to actually have that gift. He almost reminds us of some of the old, like, vaudeville pre-talky silent movie musical entertainers where it's like oh they knew how to get a laugh they knew how to get someone to gasp or how to cry and yeah. koji has those skills decades removed from some of those folks and with such a bigger tool belt there's no one else like him ever in the history of music i mean there's people you can compare certain moments to and obviously he has his influences but in terms of like who he is what he represents what he's gotten to do and how he specifically has changed the world there's nobody else like him that i can think of in yeah. the history of music yeah, I can't think of a better example in history of the right person for the right moment. <laughs> I think about it with John Williams, and I think I think in, him and Koji Kondo maybe the two insane examples, at least in the in the world of music and art. I mean, being the right person for the job, I I don't think they knew the 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 importance of those projects when they were scoring them, but. They just did a perfect job. I guess another thing that's coming up in my mind is the three of us are together here is, and I'm curious if you all agree or have something to add to this, but when we have the opportunity to play some of the great video game music live, I always have a sense that the Koji music that we program, and there's two pieces in particular that we play, which is the staff role mm -hmm. from Shinoni Gashima and then the amazing athletic from Yoshi's Island. I just, I have a sense that something else happens in the audience, whatever the audience is. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm kind of, I'm looking for it every time and it happens. Every it's got to be the transportation. That's what happens to me. And, and I, I've definitely noticed that as I've looked out to the crowd. I mean, there's, there's a, this thing that he, his music 
has. I really think it transports people to a really happy, joyous place. And yeah, it's it's very special. So I think another really fascinating cap uh, for Koji is his voice as a world music interpreter. We really get these lovely forays into world music kind of throughout the canon. Pieces like Forgotten Kingdom, um, the Underground Caves in Mario 64, actually a lot of Mario 64 music, say the Lethal Lava Land, really the Mario 3 overworld with these flavors of reggae and Jamaican music, World Map 5 in Mario 3, uh, the Yoshi's Island overworld in main title. And as you guys have mentioned so many times before, there's so many beautiful African influences throughout the Yoshi Island score. Yeah, I mean, and I think one of the great things about video games and video game music is it it's this wonderful medium to sort of celebrate styles and yeah. sounds and things that maybe were no longer popular and video games were a way for a younger generation to be introduced to some of these things as well as for the culture right. at large to kind of have a re-examination and i think when he writes game music that evokes specific world folk music connotations to me it rarely feels like he's kind of exploiting these cliches for some cheap narrative association but it's almost always something a little deeper no I, i really agree i would say there's something about kondo's music as far as he delves into a particular pastiche there's often at least for me to my ear there's something personal there's something that can kind of reach out to the listener and then i think almost kind of by extension can survive outside of the suit of clothes of that pastiche And I mean, I think when we look at the breadth of his music that incorporates world music influences, one of the facets that I think is interesting because might seem an obvious influence is Japanese folk music. Yet really, when you look at the entirety of his canon, it's it's a little bit more underrepresented than other world music. And I think because Koji Kondo is Japanese... It's almost as though his instinct is to avoid it. Yes, and I've heard him in several interviews specifically say that, you know, he wasn't writing for Japanese listeners specifically, nor was he writing for American listeners. I think that universality in his music is something that is not an accident. It it was very clearly a choice. Um, But fortunately, there have been several examples throughout his body of work where he's been called to create these lovely kind of realizations of Japanese folk music.
Another cap that we'd like to zoom on just a little bit more is really Koji as a rock and pop artist. And once again, it's just incredible how fluent and confident and always appealing Kondo is in these settings. Um, what I think is really interesting is really his most recent work sees Koji finally um, able to wed many of his composing and sound design talents altogether. You know, we've by this point really moved away from the chipsets and to compose video game music today means that you really need to be like a record producer and i do think these new recorded pieces reveal really inspired ear for production yeah i mean i think if we think of all the crazy cappy music that he did for odyssey which i was so cool to find out that he wrote all of that stuff because that is a little bit of that's like the 21st century version of what he was doing on the NES, these short, simple jingles. But now there's this added layer of meta where it's processed to sound like it's coming out of a boombox speaker and yeah. things like that. And I mean, I think that also brings to mind how Koji has always been this forward-thinking music and games implementer from the earliest days on the NES. And he took advantage of the fact that those old game consoles were using real-time synthesis, which meant that they could change and sort of transmogrify elements of the composition in real time. That's something that you actually can't do quite as easily with Redbook audio or manipulating WAV files or MP3 files. Great examples of this would be, you know, some of the tempo changes in the Mario series when things get faster, or one of my favorites is Touch Fuzzy Get Dizzy from Yoshi's Island, where, you know, this portamento setting is added to one of the channels and the music really sort of expands and contracts. Now, if they were going to do that nowadays, they would have a separate recorded piece of music and and time things out that way. But one of the advantages to the sort of chip era was that you could kind of break apart the code of this music and and change some of the settings, change the articulation, change the tempi. That's something that he's always taken advantage of. And really some of the genius in the sort of music-coded menus of kind of 64-bit era and later games where all of our bleeps and bloops are in tune with uh, whatever is happening in the music down to the like chord progression and the changes of of the harmony. And yeah, not something that really can be effectively implemented, um, you know, with actual sample recordings. Yeah, I mean, this is the place in which his sound design and composition hats sort of meet. And I think this is sort of a good time to get into really what I think is kind of an elephant in the room here, because everything we've focused on so far has been related to Koji Kondo as a composer. So much of what we've discussed could be reduced to a piano sketch or it's something that could be whistled and you know what it is. But so much of his genius has to do with how sound interacts with gameplay. Marty's prepared a deep dive into a sometimes unappreciated facet of Koji's body of work. If you had to preserve just two video game tracks, there'd be no better choice than the main level themes on an early pair of back-to-back Kondo projects, Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda. Their legacy, thankfully, is in little doubt. They may just be the two most widely recognized, covered, and beloved themes in all of video games. These scores were written and implemented for the Nintendo Entertainment System, a machine known as the Famicom in Japan. 
capable of three channels of synthesis, one of white noise, and a sometimes utilized one-bit sample channel. The teams building these early Nintendo console games were small, five or six people in total, and Kondo was responsible for anything and everything that made a noise, be it tune or sound effect, etude or explosion. Today, viewing our maestro's already massive musical canon, it's difficult to fully appreciate this other side of the sound job. Really, it defies reason and fairness that this cherished composer is also a visionary of sound effect and design. Call it John Williams and Ben Burt in one. And much like the world-changing sounds those geniuses forged in Star Wars, the sonic footprints of Mario, Zelda, Star Fox, and beyond are inseparable from their game's earth-shattering successes. So how neatly do these two roles of Kondos divide? It's really a technical and fascinating question. Zooming in on Super Mario Bros., the very first sound we hear is music. The main overworld theme opens on that famous D9 sound, kicking off a turnaround that lands in our key of C major. If you've made Mario jump by now, you've then heard this against the music. I think we'd all call it a sound effect, but it's produced with the same tools as the underscore, this modest synth sound chip. When Mario is small, the tune is a glissando from an A up the octave to another A. Just before the ascent, we hear a duty cycle change, basically a switch in tone color on the Famicom square wave synth. This gives an extra percussive accent to the note before it smoothly slides up the octave. When Mario is big, the duty cycle switch and glissando start lower from D to D. This is a perfect fifth lower than the small Mario jump. Both of these pitch profiles strike a lovely balance of working with the key of the music while still feeling distinct from the primary melody in the underscore. Koji has a great taste for this across the sound effects. They feel lightly outside of the music without being truly dissonant. The main exception to this tension being the pause jingle, which cleverly brings us to harmonic rest as the game itself takes a break. Fun fact, the root of essentially all music in the game is C. I'd bet money it's so that the musical sound effects relationships work across all levels. Similarly, Zelda's music is rooted nearly all in B-flat or its relative minor G minor, much of its sound effects complementing that tonal center. Now to be sure, some of Mario's sound effects are almost pitchless, utilizing the available white noise channel to exciting effect. But the wide majority are synth sounds with recognizable melody of a kind. To involve yourself in sound design on the Famicom is to compose. It's a matter of pitch and rhythm and timbre. And some of these sound effects melodies are nothing short of dazzling, and they do much to connect the entire sound score. Whenever our famous mushroom appears, it's accompanied by this augmented figure, rising chromatically. Pick up the mushroom to grow in size and we hear, famously, an ascending, asymmetrical climbing arpeggio that foreshadows the music we hear when clearing a level. Descending down a warp pipe gives us this rapidly descending arpeggio, almost outlining our opening D9 fanfare. This D, the second degree of our scale, or supertonic, is emphasized often in the sound effects palette here. In a past segment on logo music, I talked at some length about the coin noise. It's a rising perfect fourth, also within the key of C major, but tastefully distant from the tonic chord. But a similar timbre to that coin noise appears when we reach for an extra life. This is a true jingle and sits comfortably at home in the tonic chord, perfectly expressing a sense of ease. The sound for Mario's death uses a cleverly programmed portamento. It's a falling pitch on each note, which really gives a sense of being suddenly dazed. Fun detail, the square channel with this portamento effect continues playing through the musical tag alongside the more typically programmed square and triangle. 
absolutely critical piece of sonic art is the part jingle, part score that accompanies the Invincibility Star, what we lovingly call Starman. Making use of all three synth channels plus noise percussion, this certainly seems to cross the line from sound effects into music, but in many ways it's an expansion of the same compositional philosophy we're exploring here. The piece is just so appealing and well-judged that we can't seem to help but hear this two-bar, two-chord vamp is something like a full song. Interestingly, it also begins by emphasizing the supertonic. Here it's an implied D minor 7 that descends down to our tonic C, extended to imply a major 7th sound. These are actually the first minor and major 7th chords we ever hear in the Mario canon. Taken all together, there's a spectrum of sound classes here, all uniquely functional to the game score. And shockingly enough, these classes describe the makeup of almost every game soundtrack since. So we have full-fledged background music, largely uninterrupted during play, including an ending cutscene cue at the game's finale. There are musical fanfares and tags, triggered by completing levels, losing life, or defeating bosses. We have musical vamps when entering a different game state. There are jingles that musically describe objects in the environment and players' interaction with them. We have quasi-pitchless noise acting like a kind of Foley audio response to player action. And there are brief chimes, emphasizing menu and interface player inputs. For most of the following decade, for the games he was assigned, Kondo would be responsible for all of it. Now, would it be possible to recycle any of these sound elements across games, save some of the effort needed on an already demanding, time-limited schedule? Evidently, our maestro didn't seem to think so. While occasionally some similar noise channel foley appeared across games, though rarely verbatim, the suite of sound design for a score was overwhelmingly custom, and in Koji's hands, always tightly musically integrated. Sound iconography for similar tokens and items in the mysterious Murasame Castle, for example, perform the expected design function, but connect to the musical fabric of that game, in this case a striking mix of pentatonic and minor harmonic language. The high fantasy adventure The Legend of Zelda is a radically different project from Super Mario Bros., and the sound, jingle, design portion of the score is appropriately fitting. The game was developed for a hardware add-on version of the Famicom in Japan, the disc system. Taking advantage of the technology, some of the foley in Zelda actually uses recorded audio samples. There's something arresting about this raw media, this human touch penetrating an 8-bit game. The design of Zelda lends itself to fewer opportunities for level-complete jingles and underscore changes. Most of the time, we'll hear either the famous overworld theme or the equally fantastic dungeon music, written in the relative minor to the overworld. If you struggle with the game's difficulty, as so many of us do, you'll often hear this low health chime on a constant loop. Replacing one of our square synth channels as it must, Koji takes care so that the incessant warning is as unobnoxious as possible, staying in the key and tempo of our dungeon underscore. A pair of other jingles foreshadow some of the future of the Zelda saga. Uncovering the secret warp whistle, also known as the ocarina, unlocks this little melody. In one of the most inspired choices of his career, Kondo would later adapt this jingle into a stunning prelude for the now-legendary Nintendo 64 title, Ocarina of Time. Back to the original game, while much of this first score evokes shades of Mixolydian and Baroque-esque harmonic minor, one special sound effect gives us our first taste of Lydian in the Zelda musical landscape. It's a scalar ascent in F-Lydian, from the tonic up through the octave and landing on the rich ninth degree. 
Two jingles from this original title deserve special attention and survive to this day, utterly ubiquitous in all Zelda games. The first appears when opening a treasure chest. The journey of this jingle through all these years has really been a marvel. It's equal parts evolution and preservation. The other jingle deserving special attention is an impossibly effective, nearly infamous slice of music. It's the secret sound. In so many ways, here is Koji Kondo in a nutshell. It's as surprising as it is memorable. Speaking as a composer, this is infuriating. It just shouldn't be possible to have your cake and eat it too the way Kondo so often does. In his hands, extended avant-garde musical techniques taste like candy. So what on earth is going on here? You could almost describe the secret jingle as a tone row. Really, up until the finish line, nary a pitch is repeated. In broad strokes, the figure descends darkly, only to turn in a shocking climb. It feels highly detailed, with intervals of half-steps, whole-steps, major and minor thirds, and a tritone. Not only does the string musically evoke mystery, but the melody itself is almost a mystery that defies analysis. It weaves just enough inexplicit so that its functional harmony is forever in the ear of the beholder. Some days I feel like I'm hearing the color of the fifth mode of the harmonic minor scale. It's a sound that appears in some of John Williams and other film composers' mysterioso writing. In traditional Jewish music, this mode is known as Ahava Rabba. It's what we hear in Hava Nagila, for instance. It evokes a quasi-augmented sound where instead of the augmented fifth, we're hearing the enharmonic equivalent flattened sixth, which can then rub eerily against the perfect fifth. So one interpretation of secret could be that we shift from a B-rooted ahabaraba to one rooted in C. But other times I feel like I'm hearing a different shift, that the first half is in the world of G harmonic minor, like the dungeon music, where we find all of the pitches of the descent, spelled then as G, F sharp, E flat, A, and then the music shifts upward to an A flat augmented landscape. And it's also possible to hear the tune yet another way, without a distinct harmonic shift between descending and ascending. Making use of a double accidental, we can spell the melody without any false relations. That's when we use the same note in both a raised or lowered state within the same phrase. So here we would spell it G, F sharp, D sharp, B double flat, A flat, E, A flat, C. The fact that this string of notes is so comfy while still so musically mysterious, while still just two seconds long, is something of a miracle. The 16-bit era saw Kondo's skill continue to sharpen, taking advantage of added disk memory, additional channels, and a new sound chip to paint truly astonishing sonic pictures. All of his specialized compositional techniques now joined an appetite for production. Koji seized the opportunity to fold reverb, panning, delay, and sample manipulation into his sound art, and the impact on audiences was as great as the revolutionary graphics. Also worth mentioning is how Kondo's profession continued to fork and evolve. The smaller development teams of the early 80s had grown significantly, and this new staff included composers. As one of the earliest music hires at the firm and as its leading light among them, Kondo now also became responsible for selecting and managing the new talent. 
The new composer all-stars of the period, including Kazumi Totaka, Soyo Oka, Minako Himano, Yumiko Kanki, essentially everyone from the late 80s onwards, were handpicked and shepherded by Kondo. One project that needs special spotlight is the original Star Fox for the Super Famicom, which had possibly the most unique development for a Nintendo game at the time. Led again by Shigeru Miyamoto, it included a small crew of genius British coders who had migrated to the offices in Japan. It incorporated specialized hardware design, the Super FX chip, for cutting-edge console graphics. It featured a new stable of characters. And it featured a role of prominence again for Kondo, as head of sound effects. Koji tapped new hire Hajime Hirasawa to compose the game's score and focused exclusively on sound design. There's no better project to highlight Kondo's voice as a sound designer. Star Fox is a fascinating fusion of East and West game development, the sci-fi realism being counterpulled by colorful animal characters and fun, addictive gameplay. Some of Kondo's sound design is a kind of cinematic foley, sampled explosions and impacts with striking realism. Other sounds manipulate synthesis to create otherworldly lasers and engines, but nothing was perhaps as impactful and genius as the treatment of the spoken word. The British expats on the team were on hand to provide English dialogue, recording a little under 10 lines for use in the game. In the final project, only a few appear in raw form. Rather than root the entire game in English, Kondo plays pitches, mangles the samples to create an unintelligible, unique, and once again appealing suite of sounds. Here is the artist of the Super Mushroom, of Link's Tiptoes, of Mounting Yoshi, now playing the instrument of the human voice, and not for the last time. Years before, or Koji tried mightily to push recorded sounds out of the Famicom. The original Legend of Zelda, as mentioned, features some significant audio sample sounds alongside the synth and noise-generated effects. In many ways, this approach continued, with Nintendo using a mix of tonal jingles and audio-recorded samples that all combined to sonically describe the game world. By the 64-bit era, these two breeds of sound effect were more firmly delineated. For Mario 64, Kondo was responsible for composing all of the game's score, while Hideaki Shimizu implemented many of the sample-based sound effects, actually utilizing some existing commercial sound libraries in the process. Even with recorded audio taking up a much larger share of the sound, Kondo composed some truly crucial jingles and miniatures. These gems showcase the compositional philosophy we're used to, with a more richly textured synth palette that seemed to speak to a new sonic frontier in video games. The sound art that describes the Power Star is nothing short of iconic. The tune is almost a sister to the original Extra Life Power Up. Both outline an ascending C major ad 9 arpeggio, while both remain distinct. In the present day, current Nintendo productions take much the same approach, mixing tonal jingles with audio samples. The only challenge, perhaps, being the wealth of existing iconic sound design in their long-running game series. Interestingly enough, some of these classic sounds don't just retain their original melodies, but have actually reverted back to their original synth textures. Somehow, with the wealth of sound libraries and technology available, and the nearly unlimited sound range of modern systems, there's still no better sonic accompaniment to our gameplay than...
It's interesting. So I started off just as a fan of the music and I loved his music when I was a kid, but then eventually transitioning to the point when I started actually studying his music and dissecting some of it, particularly when we had those projects, you could teach like a game music course and you could use Koji Kondo's music. You could use it as an example of a really kind of pivotal way to score emotion, especially in the 8 and 16-bit era. Lately, when I've been reading through these things, especially digging into some of his history, how he grew up and his education, he studied at this fine arts school that specialized not only in music. Osaka University of Arts. Also painting. And he got really into synth programming. And, you know, he was this sort of sonic artist from his early days. It's not like he started out as like a classically trained composer and got this job at Nintendo and learned programming. When he was in high school, in college, he was playing around on synthesizers and trying to create sound effects. The sound of a lion's roar and using filter sweeps and oscillators to create sound effects, which is when it was the perfect job for him. Yeah, something that's becoming clear to me just looking at Koji in the context of all these caps is almost his gift for melody is so strong that it overshadows all of these equally strong gifts. And hopefully with this diving into his music in this fashion, um, we're kind of bringing all these other talents up to the surface. You know, I actually had a question for both of you guys, and it's kind of fitting for this last week of Nintendo Month. I think one of the things that always happens these months is we look to the future of like, what can we look forward to? What do you guys think is going to be the next game that features original Koji compositions? Do you think it's going to be the next 3D Mario game? What do you guys uh, envision? Yeah, I would anticipate the next 3D Mario. I dream of Koji having some amount of contact with Breath of the Wild 2. That'd be phenomenal. But I mean, I definitely really lament the separation of the Zelda team from Koji. And to mm. me, also, it feels like Miyamoto is, is less connected. I mean, I know Anuma is so talented, but but yeah, that would I be I think amazing. anything's possible. I mean, the fact that he composed a track for the Mario Kart, yeah. you know, 8 Deluxe soundtrack, I mean, anything. He has a history with Zelda, so it, I wouldn't rule anything out at this point, but whatever it is, I, I can't wait for it. Focusing on, you know, all these different hats that he's had to wear, but also that he chooses to wear, Koji's music is endlessly break downable in the right. fact that like you can group it in all these different ways and you find yeah. these different facets of his music and I think that's what makes it so fun to listen to and to dissect because you can group all these tracks from different contexts and realize oh wow they all feature this chord construction yet you could look at it from a different way and say oh wow yep. every single one of these pieces has like a three to five second intro melody that's so totally separate from the rest of it. And it's like, I never noticed that before. Yeah, that will yeah. never will never recur. And like we've said many times when talking about the music of Koji Kondo, it's just endlessly appealing. And it's not as though there's one or two gimmicks that get at that appeal. It's like, it seems as though whatever musical technique or compositional device is at play, it's, it's appealing. It's like, oh, this... <laughs> 
that's not supposed to be cute, but why is it cute and why do I like it and why do I need to hear it so right. much? He, he's someone who was perfect for the early days of game music because you have to say a lot with a little. It was such a painstaking process to implement that you really, by necessity, you had to put so much thought into everything that you were doing. When you're listening to the music, it just feels like it's an expression of pure fun, which is what Nintendo games feel like. They're not necessarily made for children in the sense that they're like talking down to children, but their universal mass appeal is perfect for the imagination of a child. And I think his music is earnest. It's emotionally sincere, yet so often yeah. everything can be wrapped up in this bite-sized melodic expression that is so simple and catchy and memorable, yet it can bring a tear to your eye. And it's that perfect, I mean, he's like the Mozart of our day or the Tchaikovsky or Mozart and Tchaikovsky wrapped up in one. <laughs> you know, I think something that gets to kind of circle back to one of the first points that you raised kind of in our conversation today, Will, is nostalgia and the various ways that that's looked at or maybe criticized. I think something that's often missed about the true nostalgia, where it's something that you experienced as a child and you have connection with it as an adult. In the case of, of Kochi Kondo's music, it's, it's not like we're going back and saying like, oh man, yeah, Teletubbies, it was just <laughs> so beautiful. It's like, oh dude, the alphabet song? Dude, like, <laughs> That's my row, row, row your boat? Oh man, I just need to listen to it all. It's like what... I feel like what is usually happening in the nostalgia phenomenon is that there's some kind of mature, personal, emotional piece of music that you actually connected with as a little child and you now have the voice to kind of articulate just what's so special about it. He writes these tunes that are so simple and sometimes self-consciously presented like a lullaby. Like his aims, especially in the early days of game music, seem to be something that you could imagine, you know, singing to a child before they go to sleep or playing in a little wind-up music well, box. Well, I'm not just imagining it. I can't wait to do that <laughs> with Aww. our little one who's coming very soon. I absolutely cannot wait for that. We could gush on forever yes, about this incredible genius, and we probably will if you continue <laughs> yeah. to listen to our podcast, but we couldn't imagine a better or more fitting way to cap off one of my favorite Nintendo months in recent memory. I had so much fun doing this. Me too. This was a real treat, and I wanted to thank Will and Marty for really taking the time and the reins uh, to prepare this. It's been a very busy time for me and Joe, so I really appreciate that, you guys, and what a special episode this is. You know, the first three episodes of this month were kind of in the old style, the old era format, and so it was nice to have this final episode uh, definitely squarely in the new era. Well, dude, absolutely our pleasure, and... Hopefully, wherever you are as you're listening to this, you might be with some family yes. that you hold dear. So, um, yeah, just sending a lot of good, 
good warmth and good cheer. We love all you guys so much. I think that's about it. Um, We'll be back with you in a couple weeks (laughs) with another episode. Thanks so much for listening all this month. And when we return, there might actually be another Brueggemann, a yeah. new Brueggemann Ooh, baby. No promises, <laughs> but it's possible. Oh my gosh. It's coming soon. All right. So exciting. I think that's about it. My name is Carl Brueggemann. I'm Will Brueggemann. I'm Marty Brueggemann. Have a great week, everybody. Happy Nintendo Month. Yay. Peace out.